This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in his power and love even now as you listen. Open your Bibles this morning to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. If you are new today, uh, we are in the midst of a series called Taste and See. And it's a study of the Gospels. We're walking through the ministry of Christ with the background of texts that take place around meals, with texts that in some way deal with with food and drink. And so today we're going to be in Mark chapter 8. And what we're going to talk about today is satisfaction for the hungry soul. Satisfaction for the hungry soul. Deep within us, there is a thirst. There is a hunger that only Christ can satisfy. C.S. Lewis once said there's a a God-shaped vacuum in our life that only Christ can fill. St. Augustine once said that our hearts are restless, O God, until we find our rest in Thee. Only God can satisfy ultimately. Let's take a look at this text. Mark chapter 8 and verses 1 1 through 21 And rather than read the whole text this morning, what I'm going to do is we're going to walk through the whole text uh, as as we kind of go through the course of the sermon. So let's pray together. Father, we pray that we would turn to you to have the deepest need in our life met. We know that we were, we were created by you and for you. We were made to be in relationship, in fellowship with you. And we pray that you would deal with each one of us this morning, right at the point of our deepest need. We pray that the power of your Spirit would speak to our hearts, Lord, that, that you would awaken our minds and our hearts today to see you and to find our satisfaction in you. Speak to us right now through your word, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. I'm told by whitewater canoeing people that one of the most exciting moments in that sport comes when you've been paddling down the river in calm waters and then you look up ahead and there's a V. And at that very moment, you have the choice of either paddling to one side or the other and staying in safe water, or you can head toward the V, and you're plunged into the rough water. We're right at that point, here at the beginning of Mark 8, in the ministry of Jesus. By the end of Mark 8, Jesus is, will have told his disciples, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be murdered, I'm going to rise from the dead. And, and, and by the end of this chapter, they're going to be headed toward the passion. Jesus is not going to avoid the V. Jesus is going to head straight for it. But as usual, he's not thinking about himself. He's thinking about our need. And in this text, he tells us how the deepest need 
in our life can be met. What do we see in Mark 8 and verses 1 through 21? The first thing that we see here is compassion. Compassion of Christ. In verses 1 through 3, if you look in your Bibles, it says, In those days when again a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. So the setting here, at the beginning of Mark 8, is that Jesus is ministering on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. That was predominantly Gentile territory. In contrast to the the cities on the western side of the Sea of Galilee, like Capernaum, his home base of ministry, they were predominantly Jewish cities. So, So Jesus here, on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, he's ministering to Gentiles. He's ministering to people who were not being reached out to by the religious leaders of his day. And Jesus is finding a very welcome reception from these Gentiles. Verse 1 tells us that, that a great crowd had gathered. In verse 2, Jesus says of this crowd, he says, they have been with me now three days. And, and the, ver, the word here that is used, when, when Jesus says, they've been with me three days, it means more than just that they had been physically with him. It means that this crowd has been attentive. They, they have been receptive to what he had to say. That they have been, They've been with me in the sense that they've been paying attention. They've been drinking in all that I've been seeking to, to give them spiritually. Now this was in contrast to the reception that Jesus was getting from a lot of, of his own people on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus, in, in Matthew 11... He has really given some strong denunciations to, uh, to some of the cities on the other side of the sea. Matthew 11 and verses 20 and following. He began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago and sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Now these are strong words. Do you think there are some parallels between these Jewish cities where Jesus had done most of his mighty works? Do you think there are some parallels between those cities and, and Americans today? I think so because, you know, those cities had, they had so many spiritual benefits that the people on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus is now, the Gentile people, they had so many benefits. They had such access to God's Word, like we do today in our country. 
I read something this week that the, the average American household, if you take all the, all the households in America, put them together, the average household would have 4.4 Bibles. Most of them completely unread. On the shelf. I mean, in America today, we're like spiritual anorexics. We are surrounded by spiritual food that we're not eating. Meanwhile, we live in a world where there are people that are craving God's Word. One of our own number will go forth tomorrow, pray for him. I don't mention his name in sermons like this, but but most of you know him. He leaves tomorrow to go to a place where people have, have little access to the gospel. Very few Bibles, but they can't give Bibles away fast enough because there's a hunger, there's a craving for the Word of God. And that's what Jesus is experiencing here among these, these, these people that he's been ministering to for three days. I mean, they, they have been with him. They, they've been, they've been just, just taking it in. They were, they were hungry for God's word. Are you spiritually anorexic? Are you, are you surrounded by spiritual food that you're not eating? How hungry are you for the word of God? Are the Bibles in your home used? How often? Do you have a hunger for God's Word? Do you have a hunger for worship? Is worship something that you look forward to during the week and pray for during the week? Do you anticipate it? Do you yearn for it? Do you yearn for worship? Do you yearn to be with brothers and sisters in Christ? I mean, there are people around the world that you know, they would walk for long, long distances, in some cases days, to to be able to worship with a group of Christians, to be able to have the privilege that we have. They would do anything to to have a copy of God's Word. I mean, who's really starving? You know, is is it people around the world that might be economically poor but spiritually rich? Or is it like many of us in America who compared to the rest of the world are economically rich but spiritually poor? These people that Jesus has been ministering to for three days, they have been fed spiritual food, rich spiritual food for three days. And in the process, they've, uh, they, they're beginning to be physically hungry. And what's more... They're in a very remote area on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus knows if he dismisses this crowd of 4,000, many of whom have come a long ways, many of them are not going to make it home. I mean, this is a desperate situation. It's a dangerous situation for them physically. And, and, it's, and it says here that, that Jesus had compassion for them. He had compassion for these people in verse 2. I have compassion on the crowd. The Greek word that's used here comes from a word that refers to the inner organs, the heart, the lungs, the 
the liver, the, the kidneys, okay, the, 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 inner, the, inner, the inner organs. And, and, and what it's saying here is that Jesus literally had gut-wrenching compassion for this crowd. He had compassion that went down to the, to the deepest part of himself. Now, what does this tell us about our Lord? The one who had this much compassion for this crowd, friend, he has this much compassion for you. The one who cared about their need, he cares about the needs in your life. Jesus teaches us to pray how? Among the other things that he teaches us to pray for is give us this day our daily bread. That means more than just physical bread. That's, that's referring to all the, the needs in our daily life. Whatever need that you have for, 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 for this day, I can assure you, Jesus cares about it. Jesus is attuned to it. Jesus is sensitive to your need. He has compassion for your need. He wants you to, to bring your needs before Him in prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. Dr. N.T. Wright uh, says this, Many Christians fail to appreciate and appropriate this personal concern that their Lord has for them. One does not hear of people in the Bible being rebuked for asking too much or too frequently. Uh, he, God wants you to come. He's not going to rebuke you for asking too frequently or for, for too much. You know, that, uh, thou art coming to a king. Large petitions with thee bring, for his grace and power are such none can ever ask too much. He cares about you. He has compassion for you. Bring your needs before him. We, we, we see compassion here. The second thing that we see is satisfaction. Satisfaction. Verses 4 and following. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them. And gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. Now, what are some of the, the observations and the applications that we can make from these verses? One is this, Jesus involves us in his work. Jesus involves us in his work. If you look back at verse 6, it says that, that Jesus took these seven loaves and he gave them to his disciples to set before the people. Now, that might have been, not have been the most efficient way of, of doing it. I mean, hey, Jesus could have just snapped his finger and every 
one of those 4,000 people would have had food to eat in their hands. He could have done it that way. But Jesus chooses to involve his disciples in this miracle, in this work. Just like he involves us, the closer that we get to him, the more that Jesus involves us in his work. Listen, we are to involve others in the work of the Lord. Part of what Jesus was doing throughout the the three years of his earthly ministry was that he was training these disciples. If you are a mature Christian, if you're a teacher, if you're a ministry leader, who are you training? Who are you training? Who are you equipping? Who Who are you involving in the work? Are you giving away ministry and involving other people so that they gain experience and they're being trained? This is what Jesus did and it's what he does. The closer that we get to him, the more that that he, he draws us into his work. And this is when the Christian life really gets exciting. Because we talked about last week, you know, many people have the paradigm of the Christian life that, that sort, of, sort of like we're inviting God to, uh, to join our story. God, okay, I'll give you a role in my story. That's not it. Biblically speaking, the Christian life is, is, is more like we're being invited to join God's story. That's so much more exciting. I, you know, I think Russell Moore is right on when he, he says this. For too long, we've called unbelievers to invite Jesus into your life. Jesus doesn't want to be, be, be in your life. Your life's a wreck. Jesus calls you into his life. And his life isn't boring or purposeless or static. It's wild and exhilarating and unpredictable. Jesus invites you into his life. And the closer that you get to, the more that you get pulled into his story the more that he uses you and involves you to minister in the lives of other people. Practically speaking, this means that we should wake up each and every day with the view that we are God's agent here on earth, that, 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 that God desires to use us. It means, that, it means that we look at people differently. Casual acquaintances, the people that, that God brings across our path that day, all the conversations that we're engaged in, beginning with our own family members and just extending out to the people that we work with and that we come in contact out in the public, it, it means that, that we're, we're looking at our lives as being caught up in the purpose of Christ to love people, to love people, to help people. And different people have different needs. But if you're open to the Spirit of God, He's going to show you how you can minister to the different people you encounter. Somebody uh, might just need a word of encouragement. Somebody might need for you to to listen to what's happening, to to listen in love. Somebody might need you to to speak the good news of the gospel. Somebody might need an, an, an act of kindness that would come totally unexpected, that they'll be blown away by. But the, the, the key thing is, if, if you approach life with the mentality of just loving people, seeking to love the people in your life, the people that God brings across your path, if you look at yourself as an agent of love, the Spirit will show you the, the different needs that each person has. 
Jesus involves us in his work. There's another principle that we see here, and it's this. Don't complain about what you don't have. Offer what you do have to Jesus. What did they have? Seven loaves of bread, a few measly fish. What did they do with what they had? They offered it to Jesus, and what did Jesus do with it? He multiplied it. He multiplied it. I mean, sometimes we get so focused on, on, what, we, on what we don't have. I mean, even in the church, we can just be so obsessed, you know, with, uh, with numbers. We live in such a microwave culture, and we expect immediate results. But see, Jesus says the kingdom doesn't, it doesn't work like that. You know, Jesus told some great parables about the kingdom of God. Je- Jesus says in Mark 4, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts it in the sickle because the harvest has come. And then Jesus says, what to, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It's like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet, when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Now, what is Jesus saying about the kingdom and about the way the kingdom grows? Okay, in the first parable, the parable of the, the seed growing secretly here, Jesus is comparing the kingdom to like a, a seed that's put in the ground. And you don't see what's happening beneath the ground, but something remarkable is happening beneath the ground. Life is taking place. And that life is going to come up, and there's going to be a harvest from that. And then... Jesus, in the second parable here, he, he compares the, the kingdom to like a mustard seed, which is the little tiny seed, smallest of all seeds, but it grows up to become this tree, huge tree, birds of the air nesting in its branches. Jesus says the kingdom is like this. The, the kingdom, in the, in, in the advance of the kingdom, you don't always see like immediate visible results there's work a lot of times going on beneath the surface but remarkable work is happening beneath the surface and and at some point that's going to come up you know and there's going to be a harvest and this is what the kingdom is like it, it as as you as you quietly go about the work of just making disciples making disciples who who make disciples that's what Jesus did that's exactly what he did. You know, Jesus, if, if Jesus was living in, uh, 21st, in 21st century America, he would not be a celebrity pastor. Jesus did not have a, he did not pastor a mega church. He pastored a mini church. Now, yes, he spoke to large crowds, but you know, basically he was, he was pouring his life into a relatively small group 
a dozen, and one of them didn't last. But what was he doing? He was quietly pouring himself into a few. And eventually the few was going to become many. This is the work of the kingdom. Disciples who make disciples. Think of it this way. And relate it to these two parables Jesus tells. If you were to... If you were to lead a person to Christ this year, and you were to pour yourself in them, invest in them, so that at the end of a year, they themselves have become a reproducing disciple, well, at the end of 12 months, there are two of you. Two of you. Um, At the end of two years, there are four of you. Well, still, you think, oh, you know, that's not... There's nothing spectacular about that. There's nothing, you know, nothing earth-shaking about that. At the end of three years, there are eight of you. Eight. Do you know how many of you there would be after 33 years of that process? 8.5 billion of you. This is the kingdom. You know, this is not about, you know, uh, uh, glitzy programs or, you know, just spectacular events or or whatever, you know, where you may get a lot of, quote, decisions or or whatever, but, you know, it's just, people don't last, and it just, it's, it's, uh, listen, the kingdom is about disciples making disciples, reproducing disciples making reproducing disciples. And at first, it's quiet. It goes on beneath the surface. It's, it's relatively unnoticed. And it changes the world. It changes the world. This is what Jesus did. This is what Jesus calls churches to do too. This is what we're to be about. Okay, Involving ourselves in the lives of people. Making disciples. Who are you discipling? Who are you pouring into? So that they become a reproducing disciple. Ask yourself that question. This is what the kingdom is about. This is what our church needs to be about. There's something else that we see here in these in verses 4 through 9, and it's this. Look to Jesus for satisfaction. Not elsewhere. Look to him. In verse 8, Jesus says here, Mark says they, they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces that were left over, seven baskets full. Now, do you think there's a meaning to the fact that they had seven loaves for the 4,000 and they picked up seven baskets of leftovers at the end? I think there's a meaning there. And I think the meaning is pretty clear. You know, Jesus wants to make the point, I am more than enough. More than enough. I mean, sometimes we're, we're afraid to give too generously because we're afraid we're not going to have enough. Jesus Christ says, I dare you. I dare you. Try me. Try me. Try generosity. See what happens. See what happens. See, see if I cannot open up the windows of heaven and pour down a blessing upon you. Seven loaves, seven baskets of leftovers. 
Now the word satisfied that we see here in verse 8. They ate and were satisfied. That's the same word in Greek that we see in verse 4. It's translated in the ESV as, as, as feed, but, but literally in Greek it's, it's satisfied. In other words, in verse 4, literally it says, how can one satisfy these people with bread here in this desolate place? Well, the answer is Jesus Christ. Only Jesus Christ can satisfy people in that desolate place. And only Jesus Christ can satisfy us in the desolate place of our soul. Because without him, our souls are desolate and empty, hungry. And only he can satisfy. There's a third thing that we see in this text. We see compassion. We see satisfaction. Thirdly, resignation. Resignation. Verses 11 through 13. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit. This, this is a sense of resignation. He sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now, the, the Greek in verse 11 is very, very strong, stronger than what it comes across really in, in English. When it says here, the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, that word came means that they came out in military fashion. They were coming out to do war with Jesus. And when Jesus saw them and just saw their hard-heartedness and their contentious, warlike spirit, Mark, as he usually does, just brings out the emotion of Jesus. Remember, Mark, Mark is channeling the apostle Peter. Mark was a protege of Peter. So Peter is an eyewitness to this. It just At that moment, when these, when these Pharisees came, came out to do war with Jesus, Peter had just seen Jesus just... just just sighed deeply. There was this deep sense of resignation. The word here, um, when it says that he, he sighed deeply, it's a very rare Greek word. This is the only time that it's used in the whole Greek New Testament. In fact, it's only found about 30 times in, in secular Greek literature outside of the Bible. But the only time it's found in the New Testament is here. And it, and it means just a sense of despair, a, a sense of being pushed to the limit. These Pharisees have pushed Jesus and he, to, right to the very limit, and he, and he knows that there's nothing more he can do for them. You know, it, it, it's, it's just, it's their heart, they have hardened their hearts to the point that there's nothing more that can be done. Now listen, this is judgment. If you say to God, I want my way, my life, I'm going to run it my way, you say that to God long enough, 
then friend, one day God is going to say, have it your way. That's what's happening here. That's exactly what's happening here as, as Jesus just sighs, deep, sighs deeply. It, 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 it's reached a limit. You know, Jesus is basically saying, I'm done. I can't, you know, I can't do anything else. You've hardened your heart to the point that I, I can't, nothing more, I can't do anything else. It's just, a, there's a sense of resignation here in his approach to the, the religious leaders. In fact, in verse 13, uh, when, it, when it says that he, that he left them, I mean, it, it means more than just that he physically uh, left. It means that basically it was judgment. I mean, judgment on these Pharisees. G- Jesus is basically saying he, he knows he's done, you know, as, as far as being able to, 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 to help them. And it says they came out seeking a sign. How ironic is that? Just fed 4,000 people with seven loaves and a few fish. I mean, he's done all of these miracles and healings and, and casting demons out and on and on and on. And they're seeking a sign? That in itself was a sign that they didn't want to hear the truth. They refused to see the truth. But you know, for us to demand a sign would be even worse than for the Pharisees here demanding a sign because we live on this side of the resurrection. We've already been given the ultimate sign, the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus has risen and he's Lord and he does not owe you a sign. You owe him your allegiance. As your Lord. The fourth thing that we see in this text is comprehension. Comprehension. Verses 14 and 15. Now, they had forgotten to bring bread. And they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now it's interesting that Jesus puts these two in the same sentence. The Pharisees and Herod. Because they hated each other. The only thing that the Pharisees and Herod had in common was that neither of them believed in Jesus. They were united in one thing and that was unbelief. And Jesus says it was like leaven. You know, leaven is yeast that ferments within the loaf and causes it to rise. And Jesus here is is saying that, that the unbelief in their hearts has given rise to hardness of heart. And then Jesus turns to his own disciples and he says, don't let that happen to you. It says in verses 16 and 17, they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Jesus is saying to his disciples, look guys, you're concerned about your lack of bread. You should be concerned about your lack of faith. Because you've just seen me feed 4,000 people with seven loaves of bread and a few fish. You've seen me feed 
5,000 men plus their families with you know, five loaves and two fish. You've been a witness to all of these miracles. Do you not yet get it? Now listen, we should be very slow to judge these disciples for their slowness to get it. Because the truth of the matter is that we're all pretty slow to get it. We're all pretty slow to trust God, even when we have seen God come through for us time and time and time again. He has been so faithful to us, to all of us. He has come through for us over and over again, and yet, and yet, the next time that God tells us to step out in faith and do something, the next time that God tells us to step out and trust Him, the next time that God tells us to just place something in His hands, there's always that little voice within us saying, oh, can I really trust God? I mean, it's really irrational after how faithful He's been to us, but it's there. Can I, can I really trust God? You know what? It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden when the serpent whispers, did God really say can you really trust God? Can you really trust His Word? This is spiritual warfare. This is the battle, really, of the Christian life. The battle is learning to trust God every day. Learning to trust God with every issue in your life every day. That's what it comes down to. The default mode of our heart is not to trust in God. The default mode of our heart is to rely on ourselves. We have to be taken beyond that. So as we mature in Christ into a life of greater dependence and greater trust in God. Verses 18 through 21. Jesus says to them, Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, twelve. And the seven for the 4,000? How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Is there a part of your life today where Jesus is saying, do you not yet get it? What part of your life are you not trusting God with fully? What area of your life is God calling you to step out boldly for Him in faith and you're not doing it? Jesus is saying, do you not yet understand? Do you not yet comprehend who I am, the extent of my love for you, or my power that would be at work on your behalf if you would trust me? This is why the Apostle Paul prays for comprehension. That, that we would comprehend the love and power of Christ. Ephesians 3, and verses 18 through 21 Paul prays, and may you have the power to understand 
as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep His love is. May you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand fully. Then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. Now all glory to God who is able through his mighty power at work within us to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. Glory to him in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do pray for comprehension. We pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts to see Jesus, to see the the greatness of his compassion and his love for us, to see the greatness of his power, Lord, that we might trust you more, that we might walk with you each day and, and place every situation, every challenge, everything in our lives in your hands and trust in you. May we understand that only you can satisfy our hungry souls. Would you forgive us for seeking satisfaction in things that can never satisfy? Lord, would you give us your compassion for people? Would you help us to to look at life each day as agents of God, that, that, that we would look at each person in our life, each person that you bring across our path as a person that needs your love. And may your spirit direct us in the life of every person to, to, as to how we might best show them your love in that moment. Thanks for who you are. Thanks for, thanks for, thanks most of all for going to the cross and being deprived of life so that we could have life, of hungering and thirsting so that that we would be able to be in a situation where we would hunger and thirst no more. And we know that's found only in you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're here today and God's speaking to you about a relationship with Him, He invites you to come, come to Him, find satisfaction, find life in him. Jesus invites you to come. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. That invitation is for you. It's for me. In just a moment, as we stand and sing, Jesus invites you to come. If you need have questions about what a relationship with him means, if you're saying, I want to follow him, we would love to just come alongside you, pray with you. If you're here today and God's saying, I want you to be a part of this church family as we do life together and make disciples together. We want to invite you to come today. Let's stand together as we sing. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. 
I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin. But I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1.12, To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving father, and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with him. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. I'd love to meet you and help you in your Christian journey. I would love to connect you to some other people who love the Lord and who would love you too. Come to one of our services. We worship at 8.30 and 11 on Sunday mornings. Be sure to speak to me before or after the service. Maybe you live outside our area. I'd love for you to write me. My email is pastor at fbcsuffolk.org. Tell me what God is doing in your life. If you have spiritual questions I could help you with, please let me know. We're on this journey together.